This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, our gaze returns to Central America. We'll discuss this weekend's upcoming close election race in Panama. And we'll cover concerns about justice and the rule of law in Guatemala. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. One of Venezuela's leading constitutional experts is proposing new laws to curtail the violent protests that have preoccupied the country since February. Former Senator Herman Escarra, now a constitutional law professor at the Central University of Venezuela, toured Washington, D.C. this week. He spoke about the polarization of Venezuela. The student leaders have legitimate issues about the actions of the government. But on the other side, regarding the actions of police against armed groups, in some parts of Venezuela this has become a little more grave because paramilitary groups have intervened as part of the opposition. Escarra says he hopes a third round of negotiations between the government and the opposition yields an end to the violence. The Venezuelan government has listed differing figures about how many people have been killed in the protests, but the death toll ranges between 40 to 50 people killed and thousands injured. Thousands of protesters are taking control of the streets today in Mexico City in special May Day protests designed to shut down one of the largest cities in the world. Teachers' groups are leading the protests. They are still angry at educational reforms pushed through by Mexico's president, Enrique Peña Nieto. President Peña Nieto has successfully installed the widest range of reforms in Mexico in a generation behind the political alliance called the Pact for Mexico. However, the reforms are widely unpopular. The president's approval rating has sunk to just 37%. The Olympic Committee's vice president had harsh words for Brazil this week. He said preparations for the 2016 Summer Games are the worst he's ever seen. The official told reporters it's even worse than the 2004 games in Athens. Brazil has also faced criticism from the organizers of the World Cup soccer competition that will begin in June due to delays in improvements for stadiums, security, and transportation. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Ackhamel. Thanks, Megan. The latest polls in Panama have Juan Carlos Navarro of the Democratic Revolutionary Party, the PRD, leading the pack of presidential candidates. But the top three candidates are so close, and polls in Central America are so notoriously inexact, it's anyone's race to win with seven candidates on the ballot. The other major candidates include Jose Domingo Arias of the Democratic Change Party, the current ruling party, and Vice President Juan Carlos Varela of the Panamanista Party. We turn to Orlando Perez of Central Michigan University to help us sort out the election. Perez is the author of Political Culture in Panama, Democracy After Invasion. He spoke with us via Skype from Panama City, Panama. Well, if you average the, the three major polls that came out a week ago, you had the, uh, 
the government candidate, the government-supported candidate, uh, Jose Domingo Arias of um, Democratic Change Party, with about 35%. Uh, you had uh, Juan Carlos Navarro of the PRD with about 31, 32%. Um, and then you had Juan Carlos Varela, uh, the vice president of the country, who broke with Martinelli and is now running his own uh, campaign, uh, at about 30%. So you really have about uh, the electorate divided in thirds, three candidates, um, and the electorate divided in thirds at this point. You mentioned the current president, Ricardo Martinelli. Uh, how much influence has he had on this particular campaign? He's had an enormous influence. He's had an overwhelming influence. Uh, there is no question that uh, he is very much involved in uh, Juan Domingo Arias's campaign. Juan Domingo Arias is really Martinelli's hand-picked uh, candidate, Juan Domingo Arias's vice presidential candidate is the first lady, is Martinelli's wife, Marta Linares de Martinelli. Uh, and so there's no question. Uh, the, uh, the government has spent substantial amounts of money promoting its infrastructure projects, promoting its programs, and all of that um, advertising, all of that propaganda really, um, is aimed at boosting uh, the Arias campaign. So is Arias going to be the president or is Martinelli going to be the shadow president if he wins? That's one of the many questions. Nobody, nobody really knows. Uh, there are all sorts of speculations. Arias is adamant that he's his own man, that he, you know, that he's not going to allow Martinelli to manipulate him, uh, etc. Um, Martinelli says that's not his intentions, but the the political structure that is carrying Arias and that it, and that would in fact carry him if he won, is a political structure of the party that is controlled almost entirely and financed uh, entirely by Martinelli's money and uh, and then the money of a very close. Uh, allies of Martinelli. It is a party that was created uh, by Martinelli um, in the early 2000s uh, to, to give him a vehicle, a political vehicle for his um, presidential ambitions. The party is nothing without Martinelli. Uh, you know, can Juan Domingo Arias, who, um, who doesn't have the, the, the wealth of Martinelli, who doesn't have the political history and trajectory of Martinelli, um, and who doesn't seem to be uh, a very dominant personality, can he essentially, once he gets, uh, once he dons the presidential sash, can he become his own man? I guess anything is possible. But the likelihood of that happening are, um, I think, are small. And, uh, you know, most observers would say that, that no, that Juan Domingo Arias is an instrument of uh, Martinelli's uh, ambitions. And I think at this point, what most analysts speculate is that Martinelli essentially wants, um, after the elections, wants to change the current constitution to shorten the period in which a president... Uh, a former president has to sit out 
before they can run again. Currently, it is 10 years, two presidential terms. He wants to shorten that to five years, one presidential term, so that he can run um, in the next uh, elections five years from now, so in 2019. So in some ways, this is a referendum on the Martinelli presidency, but yet we don't see um, his party actually getting more than 50% of at least the polling. We see the former mayor of Panama City, Juan Carlos Navarro, doing quite well. Uh, yes, and, and uh, Juan Carlos Navarro is, is, is the candidate of the Revolutionary Democratic Party, the PRD, which is the party that was founded by Omar Torrijos in the 1970s. The former dictator. Party, that's right, uh, General Omar Torrijos, and then it was the party of Manuel Antonio Noriega, General Noriega. It was the party that sustained politically the, the military dictatorship, but it is a party that, after the U.S. invasion, transformed itself, transformed itself into a democratic party and has had, uh, has won two of the last four presidential elections and has governed for 10 years since um, uh, 19, since the U.S. invasion, since 1990. We have talked a lot about the politics here. Are there any issues that are pushing this campaign? I think the main issue and the main dynamic here is um, continuity and change. And then what does that continuity mean and what does that change mean? The, the government has been very um, uh, assiduous in attacking the two main opposition candidates in, in terms of what they consider to be uh, their inability to continue the economic growth and the infrastructure projects and the social spending that Martinelli put forward. So they've tried to scare the electorate to say, look, we've done all of these things. I mean, one of the one of the taglines for the government is they've done more in five years than, you know, the, the, the other governments combined in 50 years or so. Um, and so they're saying, you know, these other guys are going to take that away. The opposition, all right, in turn is focusing on corruption. Um, it's focusing on Martinelli's uh, authoritarian style, his attempt to pack the, the judicial system with, with um, judges um, that are uh, compliant to him, his attempt and his success at buying, at co-opting the support of opposition legislators uh, so that he could control a significant majority of the, of the National Assembly and basically turn the National Assembly into a rubber stamp of his administration. So they're focusing on that. And, and what's curious is that both opposition candidates have basically promised that they will continue the infrastructure projects, that they will continue building the uh, next phase of the metro, of the subway, that they will continue, of course, the expansion of the canal, that they will continue many of the social spending, uh, but that they would do it better, more efficiently, at less cost, uh, and with less corruption. That's, that's their claim. So it's an interesting dynamic about what it means, what does continuity mean? Can continuity, you know, can there be continuity with the opposition winning in certain circumstances? Um, and can Juan Domingo Arias and the government candidate, can, can it claim 
that they're the change, that, that, that in fact, uh, they're going to do things uh, better. Um, and that's a difficult thing to, to do. One of the things that is important to note is that this is the fifth presidential election uh, since the restoration of democracy after the U.S. invasion in uh, December of 1989, the fifth presidential election. The last four presidential elections, all of them, have been won by the opposition, right? All of them. Uh, so there's a, there, there's a history and a dynamic of alternability in power that I think is very strong. And the question is, can, can Juan Domingo Arias, can the economic growth, can the programs, can the image and the, 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 the dynamism of Martinelli, because you have to give him that, he is very dynamic, uh, not very charismatic, but very dynamic. Um, can that overcome the tendency in Panamanian politics to vote for the opposition every five years? We haven't talked much about Vice President Varela. Does he have any chance? I think he does. I think he does. His, his campaign uh, people um, say he does, and, and some of that is spin. And I think um, he does. He, the, the key to Barela is, of course, how many votes he can take from Arias. How, how, you know, and, 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 and I didn't mention this earlier, but, but if you look at the trajectory of the, of the polling up to the last poll, the trajectory was basically uh, Arias going down, Varela going up, and Navarro steady. The question is, how far up can Varela go? Um, and how far down can Arias go? Um, and without uh, reliable polling in the last few days, it's, it's virtually impossible to know this. And, and can Navarro essentially remain steady and still, uh, and still win? It is clear that, that the government campaign and Arias understands that their big, their enemy, their clear enemy uh, is, is, is Varela, and they've been attacking him uh, mercilessly because they understand that Varela and Arias are basically uh, playing for pretty much uh, similar votes, uh, similar social sectors, similar votes. Uh, Arias a little bit more urban, Varela a little bit more rural, but, but pretty much this is the 60% that voted for Martinelli in 2009. Uh, and the question is, uh, how, man, how, how many of those votes go with Varela as opposed to Arias, who is the, um, you know, who, who, who is the candidate of, of Martinelli. Uh, there are a lot of people who are, who are angry at Martinelli, who, who are angry at his politics, who are angry at the manner in which he has run the country, who are angry at the, at the massive debt, etc. How many of those go with Varela? Thank you so much. Orlando Perez of Central Michigan University, the author of Political Culture in Panama, Democracy After Invasion. Join us via Skype from Panama City, Panama today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. 
Earlier this week, a judicial panel in Guatemala ended the bid of Attorney General Claudia Pazzi Paz for reappointment. Pazzi Paz was known for bringing former dictator Efrain Rios Montt to trial on genocide charges and working to end impunity. However, in the past year, since the Rios Montt trial, Pazzi Paz has faced heated reactions against her attempts to strengthen the country's justice system. The country's highest court not only overturned the verdict in the Rios Montt case and set it for retrial, but the same court ordered the attorney general's term be shortened by seven months. Now, later this month, Guatemala's President Otto Perez Molina will be picking someone other than Pazi Paz as the next attorney general. Before this week's decision, we spoke with representatives of the Guatemala Human Rights Commission about the justice system in Guatemala. The commission is a nonprofit group with offices in both Washington, D.C. and Guatemala City. Here are excerpts from our conversation with Kelsey Alford-Jones and Rob Mercatante. We're really concerned about the fact that the attorney general wasn't able to finish her term in office. It's a sign, of, I think, of a much larger problem in the Guatemalan justice system of corruption, of, of institutions that are not functioning um, and that are working to secure the interests of those that are hold power, the traditional um, oligarchy in Guatemala, members of the military, um, those that are seeking impunity. And so that entire, oligarchy still exists, still holds on to power. It still exists. There's a the kind of old money crowd and the new money um, and connections, uh, complex connections between um, those different groups, organized criminal networks, um, current and former military, and and, and transnational companies. It's a very um, a complex power structure in Guatemala, but ultimately. Um, there are kind of the same people that have held power for 100 or 200 years that still hold power. And in Guatemala, you talk about the, you know, the eight rich families or the 10 families that, that essentially control the country, um, as in other places in Central America. And we see that play out in the justice system. And it attempts to buy off judges, attempts to um, subvert cases, attempts to obstruct uh, judicial processes that are happening. And this came out in the genocide case last year, um, in a case in which there were uh, 100 uh, motions filed by the fence, um, at least, trying to obstruct the process. There were threats that came out publicly um, against the judges, against those participating in the case. And ultimately, after a... a press release by Guatemala's business lobby saying we will not stand for a conviction on genocide. The Constitutional Court overruled um, or kind of annulled the ruling by by the lower court judge, completely outside the, the realm of rule of law in Guatemala. So we see these types of... And this is where the Attorney General in Guatemala, Claudia Pazzi Paz, where her, her term seems to unravel. Yeah, that was a, a really key moment. This case was a long time in the running. It was filed in 2000, I think, in Guatemala. There... It, were attempts to move it along at certain points, but there wasn't the political will to do so within the public ministry, the public prosecutor's office. And with Claudia Pasi Pas in office, um, which came in in 2010, December of 2010, there began to be um, re- political will within the, the public prosecutor's office to investigate, to move forward, not only the genocide case, but a slew of other really important kind of emblematic human rights cases from the internal armed conflict. And the vast majority of the human rights violations committed were by the Guatemalan state. And the vast majority 
are in impunity still. A number of the people that played a very key role in the internal armed conflict are now members of the the administration in Guatemala. So there's a very um, there's a lot of fear still about moving those cases forward. But having a, someone like Claudia Pasipas in office um, made it possible for the prosecutors to begin investigating. And the fact that that went to trial, holding a former head of state, um, former dictator accountable, and his head of military intelligence was a a moment that uh, kind of rocked Guatemala to its core. And there were um, created a lot of conversation, a, a lot of threats, as I mentioned, and it began this intense campaign against Claudia Paz, Paz and others involved in moving these cases forward, including the judges um, that heard the genocide case, including members of the Supreme Court, one in particular named Cesar Barrientos, who had been integral in making sure that these cases advance. And what we're seeing now um, in at the beginning of 2014, um, constitutional court, the same court that um, annulled the decision in the genocide case, um, ruled to cut short Claudia Pasipas's term by seven months um, outside their legal purview. Um, this has been denounced nationally and internationally by a number of different organizations. Um, but really, there's nothing much that we can do at this point um, other than uh, be very concerned about the state of rule of law in Guatemala. What happened? What was the tipping point? A year ago, we had a former dictator on trial in Guatemala with thoughts that he he might come to some particular justice. What caused this? Was it simply the business community said enough and we're done with justice? That's a really good question. I think difficult to answer. There, uh, kind of in civil society, apart from these institutional processes, there was an increase in defamation um, in public attacks on these officials. Um, one particular institution called the Foundation Against Terrorism in Guatemala that through social media, through publications in the press, were kind of using discourse from the internal armed conflict, calling anyone who was seeking justice a terrorist, a communist, um, a traitor. And and it just has caused increasing tension um, in Guatemala society. And I think, you know, Rob Mercatante, who's the director of our Guatemala office, can talk about what that's been like in Guatemala. And you recently were in Guatemala, so tell us right. what your view is of the rule of law. Well, this, the, there are real direct and tragic, I think, uh, effects when you have a weakened judicial system. In fact, I'd, I'd say safe to say nowadays that there's there's an undeclared war that's been declared uh, that's been undeclared <laughs> war that's been declared on on uh, that's been that's being waged right now in the court systems against human rights defenders against any human rights activists. And it's, it's a two-edged sword that's so being used against them. So the court's being used against human rights defenders. Exactly. And again, one, one, uh, one way of looking at it is, the, uh, is impunity. Uh, impunity for the big cases of, of, uh, of the past, uh, like the genocide trial, but also impunity in the, in the cases uh, of crimes committed against human rights defenders, attacks against human rights defenders. Uh, which we're seeing a, a massive spike. In, in the year 2000, there was uh, 59 confirmed attacks against human rights defenders in Guatemala. With this new administration, the first year of their administration, that jumped up to 305 confirmed attacks. Last year, that number more than doubled. There were 657 confirmed attacks on human rights defenders, including 18 assassinations. When you have a judicial system that's not working, that provides no investigation into these attacks, no investigation into the, the people and the organizations that are behind these attacks, you're leaving these human rights defenders vulnerable. 
at and, the same and if time, if I may, if yeah. that, that this is the administration of President Otto Perez Molina, exactly. um, has he come out and and said anything? about these statistics when they're presented? Not necessarily about these statistics. As far as the judicial system goes, he's he's intentionally tried to remove himself from making comments on ongoing cases, and yet at the same time, as the genocide case was going on, he was denying that genocide ever happened in Guatemala. And that would be General Rios Montt, who was his commanding officer when he was in the army. Exactly. Otto Perez Molina himself was a military commander during the worst years of the armed conflict in one of the areas that was hardest hit by massacres and forced disappearances and torture. Thank you so much, Kelsey Alford-Jones and Rob Mercatante of the Guatemala Human Rights Commission, our guests today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. For more on Guatemala's Attorney General and Justice, please check out the AULA blog, the blog of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. This week, the blog features a commentary from Stephen Dudley of the think tank Insight Crime. You can find the blog at aulablog.net. That's aulablog, all one word, dot net. And now it's time for our own commentary. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. Hard to believe, but U.S. government officials might just be telling the truth about the Zunzuneo program to bring Twitter to Cuba. The program probably was legal under U.S. law. It is certainly similar to pro-democracy initiatives elsewhere, and no one should doubt that it was intended to expand the freedom of Cuban citizens. Regime change might have been merely the wishful thinking of a zealous official. With a stretch, the program just might be called discreet, not secret. But true or not, many crucial questions remain unanswered. One is whether the Zunzuneo program was compatible with other U.S. policies and programs. We know that senior U.S. diplomats are negotiating diligently with Cuban counterparts over immigration, postal service, drug trafficking, Coast Guard coordination, and other serious issues. The U.S. also gives considerable importance to getting imprisoned U.S. aid contractor Alan Gross home. How has Zunzuneo affected the likely success of these other priorities? Another question is why the U.S. is so alone in pursuing its Cuba policies. Are there no countries in Europe or Latin America that care about freedom and political rights in Cuba? Do Zunzuneo-style programs make it more or less likely that Washington will remain isolated? Does the United States care whether it has any allies on Cuba? Third, do U.S. policies in Cuba make it easier or harder for the U.S. State Department and U.S. aid to support democracy and human rights elsewhere in Latin America, in Venezuela, for example, or anywhere else in the world? Does the public disclosure of the program and other discreet initiatives affect Washington's credibility in Brazil and Mexico, or in China and Germany? And who, in fact, had the authority to launch a program like Zunzuneo? an initiative that anyone with minimal knowledge of Cuba would know to be illegal on the island. 
Did senior policy officials in the State Department or White House sign off on this? How could U.S. authorities have believed that they could keep Zunzuneo secret from Cuba's security and intelligence forces? Were there prior discussions about the policy consequences of disclosure? Finally, will the U.S. continue to sponsor Zunzuneo-style programs? What has the U.S. learned after 55 years of unproductive policies that have left the U.S. without allies in Cuba and help keep Cuba repressive and backward. If we have heard the truth about Zunzuneo, it is still a very partial truth. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and are not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to respond to his Latin American Perspectives commentary or any part of this program, you may contact us, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse all one word, at gmx.com. And now a programming note, Latin Pulse will be coming to you early again next week on Thursday, May 8th. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us inside the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org slash latin pulse also all one word that's www.linktv.org slash latin pulse thanks for joining us this week on latin pulse for our entire team associate producers megan Eckhamel and elisa pacheco and announcer victor kilo i'm rick rockwell escucha nosotros gracias por su tiempo latin pulse is produced in washington dc at american university school of communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs> <laughs>